Welcome to Jaipur Bites, the JLF podcast. I'm your host, Lakshdatta. What you're about to listen to is a live session from ZJLF at the British Library 2019, and it is called Words Are All We Have. Anjali Joseph, Lydia Zhang, and Ramesh Kunesekra in conversation with Catherine Morris. <laughs> Joseph was born in Bombay. She has taught English at the Sorbonne and worked as a writer at the Times of India and as a commissioning editor for Elle India magazine. She is the author of four novels, Saraswati Park, which won the Betty Trask Prize and the Desmond Elliott Prize, Another Country and The Living, which was published in 2016. She has just completed a novel entitled Keeping in Touch, which is set partly in Assam. Ramesh Gunasekara was born in Colombo, Sri Lanka, and before moving to Britain, he spent some time in the Philippines. He is the author of eight works of fiction, including Reef, which was shortlisted for the Booker Prize, The Match, The Prisoner of Paradise, and Noontide Toll. He has won, among other prizes, the BBC Asia Award for Achievement in Writing and Literature, and he is an elected fellow of the Royal Society of Literature. Li Jiajiang was born in Nanjing in East China, Having worked in a rocket factory for a decade from the age of 16, during which time she taught herself English, she moved to England to study journalism. She then returned to China and established herself as a journalist writing for an international audience. She recently moved back to the UK. Li Jia is the co-author of China Remembers, a book of oral history covering 50 years of the People's Republic of China, and in 2008 she published a memoir, Socialism is Great, her novel, Lotus, was published in 2017. Before we start, I should mention that we'll talk for about 45 minutes and then we'll have time at the end of the session for uh, questions. So do make a note of anything that occurs to you while we're talking. Um, I'll begin with a question for all of you. Um, how do you think moving to a different country or moving between countries has affected the way you write and the sorts of books you write? Has it perhaps inspired you to write? Who's going to start? <laughs> Would you like to go first? Um, I have just moved back to, uh, from Beijing to London, so it's quite a recent thing, and uh, I go to China every two months. So um, I think it was probably what made a big difference was to change the language. Yes, because you write in English. Yes, yeah. yes. Um, I have to say that I started teaching myself English when I was 22, 22 and a half, so uh, probably it's too late to make my English perfect, I'm sure you have noticed that. Um, but I, um, I, I wrote a book um, when I first arrived in this country in 1990. Um, a Chinese publishing company asked me to, uh, to write a book about Western image of Chairman Mao, which I agreed very happily, and I found it very interesting. Um, I think the West image of Chen Mao very much associated in the image of China. And, and the, I wrote the book, I spent many hours at Bodian Library, but the book didn't get published. So I, um, because it was regarded too negative, 
um, rejected by the censor. So ever since you know, writing a book is such a big undertaking, so I decided to write in English. Yeah. And, um, and I found, uh, well, it's a still struggle. As I said, I'm, you know, I didn't go to proper university either. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, even today I have, I have problem with the, when to use the, for example, or with uh, just the in the bed, on the bed, all these little things I... Um, why did I mention bed? <laughs> um, but uh, I find uh, also, I, I think writing English freed me. Um, I guess uh, it's freed me politically because in China there's still strong censorship. Uh, my book didn't pass the censorship. Um, I think writing, writing English freed me. I didn't go through censorship and my books have published internationally. Um, and also kind of uh, freed me literally. Um, you know, English is not my native language, so I structure sentences differently. I borrow things from the Chinese. And I, I can afford to have adventure. And I, I use sentences where I know try to consciously and unconsciously, you know, I you know, structure sentences differently. And, um, so I think that I can afford to have adventure. So I think uh, I, I just I, I don't know how to articulate or I, if I, what I said makes sense. But I do find a sense of freedom in writing a new language, even though I struggle in the language. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> um, actually, what was going through my mind was uh, lots of different moves between India and England since the age of seven, and um, uh, uh, sort of what gets left behind, among other things, lots of books. The last time I moved, I just moved with a rucksack because it was too difficult to think about organizing moving books that I'd moved from Norwich a few years earlier to Assam and then back to England. And, um, so I think I think about forgetting and what the things that, I mean, especially with reference to books, I sort of have a dim idea about some quotation or some bit in, um, when I teach, it's also funny because I don't have books. And so I'm saying to students things like, oh, can I have a look at that copy? And also, what's the, isn't that the bit where he mentions the thing about the thing that's a bit like the other thing? Mm, do I remember that properly? And it's kind of, um, so I think for me, there's a sort of uh, legacy of forgetting and half remembering, and that's kind of interesting. I think I've made peace with it. When I was a child, I, I felt a lot of angst about being um, odd demographically in the sense that my parents were from between them three different parts of India, and we lived in another part of India that wasn't any of those three parts. And we spoke English at home because it was the kind of language that everyone spoke best that was a common language, and that was odd. Um, but actually, I suppose enough oddnesses have accrued that I don't mind anymore. Mm. Yeah. Well, on the on the books part of it, actually, I can't find a book from upstairs to downstairs in the house, so often just go to the library. It's easier. But uh, I think dislocation is actually really very beneficial for a writer. It's great. And I feel very lucky to have been accidentally dislocated from place to place. Um, I don't think I thought about it at all before. But now when I think about it, I think if you're, if you're writing at all, uh, wherever you are, you kind of dislocate yourself because you're always writing about some moment that has passed. If you're very rarely, I mean, occasionally you might be writing of the moment, but it's, it's rare. It's certainly rare in fiction. Uh, so you're always, in a sense, you're writing news from another country all the time, even if you've never moved beyond your own street. 
because you've actually, in your head, you've, you've moved a bit. Um, so for me, actually, growing up, you know, like the others, but for different reasons, I, I've moved between different countries. And I think it just made it, made that sense of dislocation magnified a little bit and therefore maybe a little easier to some extent. We're going to hear a few readings that reflect the theme of the session, um, given that Sri Lanka are playing Australia today, but it's not rained off. Perhaps we should start with Ramesh, who <laughs> will be reading from his novel The Match. I know, this is terribly confusing for me, actually, because I have another session on cricket later in the oh. day, uh, and that was when I was going to read about from the match, and now, for some reason, I picked it for today. Um, good luck, Sri Lanka. Um, <laughs> can you, can you win, win the World Cup if all your matches are rained off? That would be ideal. It's, it's a bit like winning the Booker because everybody else dies on the day before, <laughs> or something like that. Um, I was going to read from the last book, which is called Noontide Tour, because it has a very pertinent first sentence. It says, every time I drive across the causeway to Jaffna, I feel I'm entering another country. But that's just a teaser, actually. <laughs> I'm not going to read from that. I'm going to read from the match. And mind if I stand up so you can see me read? Um, I don't know why you want to see me read, but never mind. Um, I'll read from the beginning of the match. And I think it does connect with what we're talking about, this idea of place and so on. And this is being slightly uh, rebellious, I suppose. I know Jaipur Literary Festival is all about South Asia and everything else. So I'm going to take you to the Philippines, which is a little further away. Um, and at the time I was writing the match, which was way, way back in prehistory, uh, before actually cricket became the kind of cricket we know now, before the IPL and so on. This was in 2003 to five, two to five, that sort of period. And the Philippines was a very far away place in Britain. Um, and in, at the time when the book is, starts off, which is 1970, I think, um, it was really not much connected, um, which, is, which gave me a sense of dislocation because when I came to London, when I came to England to live, I came from the Philippines. And I came from a country which was... Uh, very, very unusual in Asia. Uh, it was regarded then as an English-speaking country. Um, it was regarded as a Catholic country, the only Catholic country in Asia, and the only one that had uh, a colonial history connected with Spain, and then, you might say, with America. But there are connections with Britain, because actually Britain controlled the Philippines for about 18 months <laughs> in the early 1900s, which nobody, nobody remembers, not even in the Foreign Office here, I think they remember that. <laughs> um, but I lived there when I was, when I was young, um, and I never really wrote about it in my books. So it was a bit of a challenge to, to write about it. And we might talk about it a little later, um, because... 1970s Philippines, particularly Manila, is a country that's not known to many people now. Uh, not many people in the Philippines know it because the vast majority of the population in the Philippines is young and weren't around then. And the nature of the country has changed radically. 
Um, so it was quite interesting to, in a sense, set a book there. And I set a book that tried to take on the idea of cricket. And despite the British being there for 18 months, nobody plays cricket in the Philippines. At least so I thought. Uh, anyway, I'll read you just uh, the 500 words I was told to read uh, from the beginning. Uh, I'm skipping about a bit in the, in the pages to make it vaguely coherent. Um, and this is the story of Sonny Fernando, who's a young boy uh, in Manila. And he's from Sri Lanka. Uh, and there aren't very many Sri Lankans around. Um, a few. And this actually comes from a, uh, a, a chapter called Wrist Work, I think. It's a cricketing term for those of you who know. For the first years that he lived in Manila, young Sonny Fernando knew no other Silanese in the city apart from his father's friend Hector. Then in the long dry heat of 1970, the Navaratnams turned up from Ceylon. Sonny was nearly 15 and had recently acquired a pair of tinted glasses. Tina Navaratnam was unlike any girl he had ever seen. Tina, with her abundant mane and long, smooth, graceful, racing nose was almost too much for him. Sally, a breezy American girl from his class, was sitting at a nearby soda fountain with Tina. She called him over. Hi, Sonny. You know Tina? She's from wherever, too. India. Ceylon, she said, adjusting her teeny orange sundress. Yeah, an island, Sonny added. It was something his geography teacher liked to bang on about, comparing the continents Sally knew, North America, to the 7,107 islands of the Philippines on which she was now marooned. Tipsy on Del Monte juice and wanton capitalism. <laughs> Tina looked at Sonny and smiled knowingly. He blushed, heady with the sense that they'd already shared more than one secret, an island in the Indian Ocean, and Rustan's menswear, where she had been and he'd seen her. Do you? Sonny started. Oh, so you're Sonny, she said. Yeah, Sonny. He beamed. You live here in San Lorenzo? It seemed easier for him to speak for her. Tina hid her smile with a sip from a huge bowl of halo-halo, the ever-present Filipino melange of shaved ice, diced pineapple, papaya, tinned milk, green jelly, ice cream, and a spoonful of red kidney beans. The concoction wobbled in front of her nose. I saw you, he said. She said, you like halo-halo? Sunny grew up for something to keep the conversation going. You don't, she said. Sonny lunged for the safety of the everyday. Coke? Sally, who'd been fiddling with her pigtails, picking at split ends, had had enough. Tina, hurry up. We have to be there in ten minutes. Sonny didn't want her to hurry up. Hello, hello. Should not be forced down anybody's throat. <laughs> I'll see you, he said in hope to one, Tina, and in resignation to the other. But he was happy. He'd managed an almost intimate conversation Spanning weeks, it seemed, of about maybe 25, maybe 30 words, including Americanisms like, hi, okay, yeah, which he'd learned to say without flinching. 
He turned the corner and once out of sight, did a quick, wobbly skip of delight. Thank you. Can I tell us why you chose that passage in particular? Um, well, I thought the 7,000 islands would be nice to have, and the Americanisms, I thought we might talk a little bit about language, mm. um, and, uh, and, the, and the change in the English language and how you, your relationship to it mm. is, is really interesting. And for me, it was always interesting because, of course, when I first came to England, uh, people always commented on my American accent. Mm-hmm. And, and then when I, I went to America, people commented on my British accent. <laughs> and sometimes people commented on my Sri Lankan accent. <laughs> so, it's so Tina is mentioned in, in that passage. She re- reappears later in the novel. But Sonny then moves to, to London in his late, late teens. Um, Boyd Tonkin, who recently drew up a list of the ten best cricketing novels in which your novel appears. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if you saw that. Um, he, he mentioned that uh, he, he wrote... Cricket becomes to Sonny a pageant that lends drama and colour to his uncertainties of belonging, race and class. I wondered if you could tell us about those uncertainty, uncertainties which seem to be a bit of a theme in your fiction in general. Yeah, I suppose uncertainty kind of reflects my own sense of being at any, at any moment. Um, but with this book, actually, uh, I mean, it, was, it is slightly unusual for me, um, I think it even has a happy ending, which is really unusual. Um, but my, my previous books uh, often have touched on the very troubled times in, in, in Sri Lanka. Um, and the long war has been a shadow over a lot of it. Um, but the cricket story in Sri Lanka has, had been a very happy one until more recent times. Um, when they won the World Cup in 96 and so on. And I kind of wanted to capture some of that spirit. But I also got very interested both in the idea of the, the art form um, and the idea of identity and the way people might identify themselves with different groups. And I'm not really a sports person at all. Uh, my cricket experience has never been with a team. It's just been with me and a cricket ball in a sock. Um, but I was fascinated the way you know, people support different teams. Um, I mean, in football, you see it. You know, people who support Manchester United from all over the world. But in cricket also, you do find people, you know, the Sri Lankan team have a lot of supporters all over the world. Um, and there's also this weird feeling in, in sports, particularly in cricket, that you support a failing team. And you can continue to fail, and you continue to support. And you wonder why, you know, what's the psychology here? Um, you know, it's like supporting a failed state. You know, <laughs> you're going to stay with it all the way through, kind of thing. Ah, well, that happens too, doesn't it? Uh, so I, I think Sonny is a man who, who, you know, played a little bit of cricket, really just at home, uh, and then. When he's an older man and he has a son, his 15-year-old son, he tries to reconnect or to connect with him through cricket, um, through following cricket and going to matches and so on. 
And it was really to explore that idea of, of, of identity, mm. I think. Uh, you, you mentioned the, the political backdrop in both the Philippines and, and Sri Lanka. Yeah. Um, it's quite striking that, that um, I suppose they feel a sense of rootlessness, partly because they're away from the place of birth, but also because their places of birth have changed considerably in the time they've been away, they're often affected by great violence. Yes, yes. I, I think that that backdrop is... is is important. It's also important in in, in this book. Um, but c going back to the question about you know why write the other thing was I also thought uh, there hasn't been a a novel with cricket at the centre, and I thought I'd write one before somebody else did because <laughs> I could see it was going to come at some point. Of course, now there are loads. Of, yeah. loads <laughs> it's all down of, to you. Should we move on to the the second extract, uh, Anjali? Would you like to read from your sure. novel, The Living? Um, so this is a novel uh, about two shoemakers, and uh, it, the, it's told in the first person in four sections, um, alternating. Uh, and this is a bit uh, from the um, the Indian one who makes uh, Kolhapuri chappals uh, in the west of India, in Maharashtra, um, and he works at home. Uh, so I'm going to read. Um, I'm just going to read a couple of pages from this. His name is Arun. Uh, I've never made a perfect pair. There's always something. The scorpion's tail on top of the belt curves differently on one side, or there's an asymmetry in the point of the toe. I could say it doesn't matter, no one will notice, that the only perfect thing is a dead thing, that each pair is like a husband and wife. Their imperfections complement each other. At first, it's uncomfortable to wear our chappals. They have to be lived with. When they're new, they harass the skin between your big and middle toes. You'll dip them in water and let them dry in the sun. The varnish will come off the sole. You'll wear them in, slipping around. Like a tool used by the same man for years, or a child raised by a certain woman, they'll bear the imprint of your habitual bias. My eldest son, who makes the manufactured chapels, has heard all of this and isn't interested. They came this Sunday, without my grandson, who had a cricket match. My daughter-in-law brought pill laddus for us to take to Pune. <clears throat> Can you even remember how to make a proper chapel? I asked my son. I don't know why I feel the need to have these conversations with him. He nodded and waved one hand. His face is smooth, this son of mine, and his eyes slide around. He's darker than I, looks more like my brother. Do you remember how I persisted? He smiled, but he looked irritated. What would you teach your son, I asked. His eyes slid up to mine, then he looked away. He exhaled. Was that last night's alcohol? His teeth are red, too much chewing tobacco. My wife came with tea and bhajias. She put her small hand on his shoulder. He looked up and smiled, and his face changed and became absorbed, open. If Prakash had been better in school, he would have been like his younger brother, I thought, as I poured hot tea down my throat. I watched him eat, his fingers shiny with oil. He is strong, taller than I. He likes his work in the workshop with the men and drink and listening to songs on the radio. I don't know what else he gets up to. His wife is a practical woman. She wouldn't complain. And Anil, he's not like my other grandsons in the city, but he's a good boy, straightforward. When his cousins come here, he shows them things, the pond to swim in or they go to the fort by bus. They look up to him, but they also turn their heads to each other and smile. His mother is always with him. They are different. They live alone in a way. A bus takes them to school. They have a uniform, a routine. From the cooking, I smell methi, basin, oil. I thought about the two brothers, so different. My second son is like a, virgin, a version of me projected into the future. He's industrious, always wanting to get ahead without knowing where. He has his mother's softness, her intelligence and optimism. 
There's something about, I, about us that neither of them has, but not every bit of material can be used. Thank you. So we have these two characters both making sandals uh -huh. in, their, in their different countries. Did you have the explicit intention of crossing uh, cultures and countries in this book, or was their background more incidental? Um, you no, know, I didn't have the, the intention at all, and it's quite an odd uh, choice. <laughs> but it just sort of happened, I guess that's what came to me. Yeah. Um, you said that you write in the tradition of R.K. Narayan. Could you tell us what you mean by that, and how his um, style and approach differ from other Indian writers? Uh, yes. Do you, what, do you remember what else I said about that? <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm not. Um, um, my sense that was that another tradition is more exoticized, perhaps. Okay. Um, actually, when you were talking, Ramesh, about the importance of dislocation, which was really nice, I was thinking that I always worry about not being somebody like Narayan, who grew up in a mm. small South Indian town, was totally steeped in that town, and um, could recreate another analogous. South Indian town um, uh, so beautifully. And I sort of always have this anxiety that you know a bird might call and I would misidentify the bird or I wouldn't know exactly what tree I'm looking at or whatever. Um, so, uh, but I think it's the everyday that's beautiful in Narayan. So I guess that, that that is probably what I was thinking about. Um, and he also, actually that's really pertinent with this book, which I kept uh, in my mind and in the drafts calling shoes. And the publisher said, absolutely not. <laughs> but. Um, but he used to always write novels that, that had a profession <coughs> in the title, so uh, um, uh, now I can't think of any. The Bachelor of Arts, or the, the uh, Painter of Malgodi, Simon the Painter of Malgodi, or the, um, there's one about a printer, I think, Mr. Sumpert the Printer and stuff, so yeah. yeah. Um, Neil Mukherjee calls your most recent novel a beautiful and profound book that distills with uncanny precision and truthfulness the flow and movement of inner lives deep under the surface of things. Um, you said that as a reader you don't care much about plot, I wondered if you could tell us more, more about that, about what you personally look for in a work of literature. Um, I think it's really voice, actually, that I look for, mainly. Um, and I don't really mind what uh, someone's writing about, even things that I may not be very interested in. I mean, the kind of sport that I don't know much about, or war, something I haven't you know, experienced, for example, fighting in a war, I mean. Um, so... I think, I think it's really that, yeah, it's voice, that's mm. what I look for. But I, I know that's not necessarily everybody's uh, on everyone's wish list mm. in the same way, yeah. And you uh, wrote a piece about realism in literature. How important is realism, do you think? Uh, to whom? To the, to the reader or to the writer? I think it's really interesting. I was, I was thinking about story um, more recently when I was watching Game of Thrones. <laughs> and... Uh, that's sort of got elements of realism, like you know, English swearing and, and kind of very contemporary things in some ways. But also, obviously, it's not in a, in a realist mode at all. I think realism is, it's sort of become a slight um, holy cow more latterly, but actually it is just one tradition in a series of traditions, right? And it's sort of interesting that, that there have been kind of overt deviations like magic realism or whatever, but also other types of deviations or modifications of supposed realism, I guess. The one thing about realism I'm quite interested in is when uh, people write about things, like the amount of stuff that there is in books or the type of stuff that there is in books. I think that's interesting. What kind of stuff do you mean? Uh, well, there's a famous essay by uh, Roland Barthes where he talks about um, uh, uh, the opening of the Flaubert story, and he talks about um, some boxes in a, in a, in a storage room in a, in a family's house, and he says, basically, he sort of accuses the realist writer of bringing too much stuff in there because they're too attached to their own stuff and their own, their own experience and they kind of don't want to let that element of memoir or personal lived experience go. 
But I think stuff is sort of interesting. Uh, I mean, stuff is kind of at the, its energy at the most um, slow-moving level, right? It's like stuff is the result of decisions that we've made, things we bothered to, for example, in a dislocated life bring with us. It's mm. kind of interesting. Mm. Um, and sometimes it's the little bits of uh, absolute rubbish that one is most attached to. Mm. Um, yeah. And you've spent some time learning Assamese. What do you think that's brought to your writing? <laughs> Uh, I don't really... I, I think reading Assamese fiction really uh, changed my experience of um, writing. It's a very literary culture. And um, there's a lovely book of short stories actually translated by D.N. Bezborowa called, I think it's Classic Assamese Short Stories. It's published by Penguin India, um, if you could find that online. Um, but there's it really, really modernist writing with a really sophisticated use of myth and... Um, uh, sort of folk elements, um, always intrinsically I ironical. I don't know how to sort of describe it, but where irony is kind of a, me a medium of existence, not really a mode even. Um, and I think that's fantastic. The only thing that, that the closest comparison that comes to mind is how in the 16th century plays are so sort of metatheatrical. I mean, it's actors on a stage, feeling like actors on a stage, talking about being actors on a stage, but also acting out a story. Mm. That's kind of what Asmi's fiction is like. Mm. There's always this element of... Um, being aware of telling a story and being aware of what it's like to listen to a story, even as you tell a story that's not about telling a story at all directly. <laughs> so, I think I've got that. <laughs> so um, I was just really impressed. I think I hope it, in 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 the end or in the long run it'll just up my game a little bit. But yeah. Uh, Should we move on to our third extract? Yeah, I was going to read from Lotus. <clears throat> well, before I start reading, I'd like to make just I've got the point to make the the um, earlier we talked about language. And I do, I, the, the first Roman empire famously said, when you gain a new language, you gain a new soul. And I don't know if I got a new soul, but I do think that's, you know, writing or speaking a different language bring out different personality. For example, when writing English, I, you know, I feel um, I'm less reserved and more daring. Mm -hmm. And for example, if I... If I, I, I wrote the book um, Lotus in English, if I written, had written in Chinese, I think uh, the sex thing probably would be less detailed and less <laughs> <laughs> explicit. Um, that's just in writing Chinese, just too much language. You know, my mother's language, my mother would read. <laughs> she, she cannot read English. <laughs> um, but I'm, not, I'm sorry to disappoint you, I'm not going to read any sex thing here. <laughs> I'm going to read um, the opening of uh, chapter three. Um, Lota is the name of uh, the leading character. She's uh, a sex worker. Uh, it's a book about prostitution, and actually just uh, uh, prostitution, for me, just a window to observe the social tension brought by the dramatic social transformation, uh, things reform opening up. Um, each, each chapter starts with a Chinese saying, anybody here have been to China? Wow. <laughs> I have quite a few new friends here. And I'm sure you agree with me, Chinese is you know, such a rich uh, language and so many interesting sayings. So every chapter starts with a saying. This chapter, chapter three, starts with this saying. If you stay long in a fish market, you'll soon get used to the stink. <laughs> Standing outside the moonflower massage parlor with three other girls, Lotus flashed her red smile at every passing man. She leaned against the glass front of the parlor 
one leg bent like a crane's, luring in the clients with sweet and oily words, consumed a surprising amount of energy. The sun had just rolled down behind the western hills, burning a red trail in the sky. The high-rises in the city centre blocked the sea breeze. Without wind, the soup of store air thickened, filled with smell of fuel, shampoo, cheap perfume, roast duck, and fried noodles. In the twilight, the girls lined up along the street, looked more colourful than usual. They leaned against the buildings, against each other. The luckier ones sat down on white plastic chairs, chatting like magpies, cracking melon seeds between their teeth. The parlour and the saloons were sandwiched between grocery stores, restaurants and drug stores. The buildings were all one-storey structure encased in white, in white ceramic tiles and fitted with glass fronts. Behind the windows, silk or velvet curtains obscured the view inside, where pink lamp glowed. Not very good reading, so I'll stop no, no, here. great. So this massage parlour, uh, the one that Lotus works in, is in Shenzhen, I'm probably mispronouncing that. Yes. Uh, what is the significance of that location? Why did you choose that location? Well, start with, uh, Shenzhen is known in China as the China's capital of things. There are uh, um, particularly well-developed sex industry, and also um, it is cross-border from Hong Kong, where some businessmen keep Arnai, um, mm. modern-day concubine mistress. And uh, also, Shenzhen is the place where China first introduced the economic zone. So it's a place China starts to experiment with uh, capitalism, market economy. So this book is very much looking at the impact of the you know, market reform opening up on, on Chinese society. Mm. And this novel, it brings together something of your grandmother's life, doesn't it, with your, with your own life. So could you tell us about, about your, what inspired this novel? Um, 20 years ago, right in front of my grandmother's deathbed, I learned a long-kept family secret that my grandmother was a, a, a prostitute. And I, I was shocked, of course, you don't associate with a grandma with a, a, a sex worker, especially my grandmother. She, she brought me up. And then my mother explained that my grandmother um, uh, was born in a very poor family and she became orphan when she was six seven years old, uh, and then she was adopted by her aunt family. When she blossomed into a young woman, she was sold into Brussels. And she met my grandfather on the job. That was another surprise. <laughs> <laughs> no, I remember my grandfather as a shaky old man. <laughs> he, he was a job, but anyway, so he was, uh, and he, um, he was very smitten with my grandmother. He uh, fought her out and installed in the household as, uh, as his concubine. Right. And um, her life wasn't, was easier, but uh, was not very easy because concubine didn't have the same status as wife. So in 1949, when the Chinese communists took over power and Mao ordered the men to have one wife, so he decided to keep his concubine, my grandmother, yes. in case his wife. So, so my grandmother was always very grateful to the Chinese communists. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, so ever since this story, I was, you know, I was very fascinated mm. by the prostitution. Mm. Uh, and then just a few months after that, um, I, I worked as a journalist, so I went down Shenzhen to, mm. um, um, to on a reporting trip, and one evening I went to the, uh, just a, 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 
hairdresser near my hotel, and I said I want to cut my hair. So, but the girls, the three girls there, wearing low-cut dresses, and they were just giggling. And said, "Sorry, we didn't know how to cut hair. Hairdresser didn't know how to cut hair." I looked down the floor and realized there was no hair shavings, and suddenly it clicked what kind of place it was. So I chatted with girls and learned that they were all, you know, from poor hinterland, um, and then they they come down to Shenzhen, worked at the production line, and you know. Pay. Life was really hard, and pay was bad. And then one of them, one of the colleagues, got a, a job like this. And prostitution is illegal in China. Um, you know, this uh, massage parlor, and hair saloon, just all front. Anyway, so I, and I just then that's sort of when the seed for this novel started. Mm. Because prostitution touches upon some pressing issues China's facing: migration, you know, from rural to urban. Uh, gender issue, um, the gap between um, gender inequality, and, and the tug of the war between modernity and tradition. So, anyway, that's mm. how I had this idea. Not um, I wrote um, some in China. Some people heard me because of my memoir about my experience working at a missile factory. So I keep telling people, sorry, this is not another memoir based on personal experience. <laughs> <laughs> I've I done few jobs, but uh, not prostitution. Only prostitution I've done so far is intellectual prostitution, trying to sell my articles <laughs> into several places. But you were able to write, write about factories uh, as a result of your 10 years in yes, factory. Yes, yes, yes. 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 Um, I worked at a rocket factory. But I, I was no rocket scientist. I was uh, most <laughs> a junior um, factory worker. And what were the circumstances in which you, you went in to, to work for the factory? Poverty. And, and I was 16, and um, we were just poor. My mother just took me out of the school. And, and uh, mm. anyway. So do, do you think your, your early life and the struggles you went through, does, that, um, does, it, does it inform the work you do now? You're a journalist as well. Yes, I guess my, um, I worked at the factory, my life wasn't easy, and uh, I guess um, that made me more resilient. Mm -hmm. And I taught myself English as a way to escape my life at the factory. Uh, of course, now looking back and you know, learning English has effectively changed my life. And also, I think because I'm coming from a um, uh, poor background, I'm always interested in people little people struggling in the bottom mm. of society, I remember I met somebody, Grant, he said, who's, who's your father, some general? I said, no. <laughs> um, in the book, we read that uh, Lotus, like the city herself, is torn between the past tradition and modern desires. I wondered if you could, you could talk a bit about that, what, what that sort of um, conflict it is. And she, uh, Lotus, is a very smart girl, and she's not very, very happy with the life in the, in, the, in the village she wants to go out. And, and so she, you know, she's um, she's very smart, but she has her family. She has been taken out of school. So I said I'm not a, a prostitute, but I do relate to to her life mm -hmm. and how she struggles to better her life. Um, and um, and then she just fell into this uh, prostitution, and she really struggled because of her tradition uh, in the village, mm -hmm. expect women to be you know chased and. You know, this kind of really... She uh, keeps it a secret, doesn't she? Yes, for long? yes. Of yeah. all uh, sex workers in China, I've interviewed many of them, they all live uh, from another, another city, mm. not, and they make up stories, so oh, I got a grand job working as salesperson, I make good money, 
so they mm. never tell the truth to their family, mm. but they do send, send money. And that's the way, you know, because the Chinese uh, they allow purity, but also something to make themselves feel better mm -hmm. for themselves. I've, I've got a question now for, for all of you, any or all of you. Um, bearing in mind the international outlook of your characters, do you have a particular audience in mind for your writing? I'll just answer this question briefly. Yeah. I think for writing, um, um, it's a different ball game to writing for domestic um, uh, audience and writing for international audience. Um, if you write for, for example, if I write for a Chinese uh, audience, there will be a lot of presumed knowledge. But while I'm writing for um, international audience, I think I need to explain, you know, cultural revolution. For example, what is cultural revolution, market mm. economy? So I need to find a way. Uh, and that's done through Bing. Is it the character of Bing who is um, yes, a photojournalist? Yes. Yeah. But uh, why? Just uh, just recently, I read some earlier uh, earlier draft. You know, I was too journalistic, and our cultural revolution. I was in a bracket. The, you know, <laughs> 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 a, a crazy movement launched by Chairman Mao. But anyway, so writing a novel, you have to find a way mm. to let information come out more naturally. Yes, I wonder that. In fact, I noticed that in Angeline's uh, novel, that there are quite a lot of uh, references to birds or somebody who's heard on the radio or a kind of tree, and they're, um, they're not translated. Is that, is that quite a difficult judgment call to make how much to spell out? Well, I do remember being a young child reading books in Bombay, and um, uh, it was sort of fine if you didn't know exactly what a handsome cab was, if Sherlock Holmes jumped in a handsome <laughs> cab, and you, you kind of got what was going on, you know? Yeah. And if you cared, you could look it up, and I think it's even easier looking up stuff now, so mm. um, I think it's fine. I, I don't think, I don't even really know what an international audience would be as such, or an audience, really. Mm. It's just one person reading at a time, isn't it? So, yeah. Um, yeah. Um, you're working on a new novel. I don't know if you'd like to explain, you'd like to describe it for us. Was it secret? Uh, well, I described it, I've described it as a dysfunctional love story um, with a tangential involvement of a magic light bulb. Um, <laughs> I think that's as, far, <laughs> that's as far as I could go at this point. Yeah. I can't wait for that. Um, do you have a sense of a, your readership as you're writing? Uh, no, I think I, it's, it's really difficult, this section, because when I certainly when I started writing way back in the previous Iron Age or whatever, <laughs> um, we understood that actually uh, writing didn't reach out very much. Uh, so you know, first time novelist, when I was sort of uh, learning to write or trying to write, I knew would have an audience of about eight hundred. <laughs> And if you took out the family members and friends, it would be an <laughs> audience of about three. So when I, when I was writing, I suppose, you know, I was writing in English, and my mother could write, read English, so I knew there was one. Um, um, but, yeah, and I was writing for somebody who would have been like me going, I was thinking in my head perhaps, going into a library, and those old-fashioned libraries where you don't know what the books are because they all look the same, they've been bound or whatever, pick it up and you read it. Um, but when I did write a book, I think I did have a sense of an audience because I discovered um, with Reef, my first novel, which I was lucky enough for people, a few more people to read than I expected. Um, and in those days, you didn't have the internet and email. And I remember getting... Uh, a couple of letters, but 
uh, one letter in particular, and that has perhaps affected a little bit because somebody wrote and said that uh, they loved reading Reef, and, and, uh, but it was really difficult because they kept bursting out laughing on the bus while they were reading it. <laughs> and I had thought I'd written a really tragic, sad <laughs> novel. So I discovered that I can do a bit of comedy. Uh, but I discovered, actually, that what I thought was a private language, um, because particularly in that book, part of it is about how somebody does take control of a language. The narrator, in a sense, takes control of the English language and makes it his own, and therefore does use words that aren't explained and so on. And I thought all of that was going to be just relevant to me. Uh, and in a sense, almost subconsciously, I did put in a few, few kind of linguistic jokes and so on. And that's what suddenly I found some other people managed to pick up on. So I realized there was actually somebody other than my mother who was going to read my book. But beyond that, no. I mean, writers may think they have audiences. But, you know. I think we're going to move to the audience. Oh, sorry. Can I just make a very quick point? So I now read The Reef, which is a beautiful book, and I, and I was just so pleased when I was working for my master at Goldsmiths, and I had the pleasure, as Romesh, as my guest tutor. So I'm just oh, thrilled yeah, well, to I, be here. I mean, it's a very special thing, actually, to be able you know, to have that uh, relationship where we, I remember you talking about uh, this idea you had. Uh, I think you, you found out about your grandmother and so on, you didn't quite know what to do with this material, yeah. and you wanted to, you were thinking of writing a non-fiction book about it, and you were thinking about this photographer. Uh, and I have a, I mean, my sonny here becomes a photographer, so I think we may have talked a little bit about that, I can't remember. <laughs> um, but it's very nice to find, you know, that stories can bring people together, and here we are on the stage together. Yeah, Brilliant. So I'm very grateful for all the tips <laughs> and advice you give me. Thank you for listening to Jepper Bites. This podcast is produced by Launchora, a storytelling and creative learning platform, in association with Teamwork Arts, the producers of the Jepper Literature Festival. If you haven't already, do subscribe to our show wherever you're listening to this podcast. Thank you.